This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. The goal of this podcast since day one is to provide the best information on the Vancouver real estate market at no cost to you, the listeners. To that end, we'd like to thank the following sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Burquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at markon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at markon.ca or follow them at Instagram at markonhomes. Markon, building for life. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your other host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, I am so excited for our guest today. We've been hoping to have John on the program for quite some time. It's been a few weeks of anticipation, but... Intense anticipation around here at the Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. <laughs> we got John Webster, the head of real estate secured lending and Scotia Mortgage Authority at Scotia Bank. This is a conversation for the ages. This is a great conversation and it's very up to date. So we're releasing this on November 11th and we spoke to John on November 10th. Right. So this is, you know, recent inflation numbers out on the 10th from the U.S. Like we, we cover it up to date information. The conversation runs really long. Yes. I, I wouldn't say really long, but a little bit longer than normal. But this is Flies by. to say in the most positive sense, we just kept, there was just more and more to talk about yeah. the deeper we uh, we got here with John Webster. So, so great having him on the show. For sure. And we're talking Canadian real estate trends in the market and will they stick? We're talking about interest rates, inflation, predictions for the market one, three, five years out. And uh, this just overall, there's just tons of takeaways. You should listen to this. It's uh, really just a concise overview of our current state of the market. It's really a state of the market address, I would say. Well, and also, I mean, here's the thing. We we talked to all sorts of people who have all sorts of impressions about Vancouver real estate and about Canadian real estate sure. on this show. And one thing we can say for sure about John is he's the head of real estate secured lending at one of the major banks in Canada. So he has skin in the game. This is a very serious look at the state of Canadian real estate in a moment of uncertainty. Sure. So it's a it's a very useful check-in. And uh, man, it would be great to have him back on the show just talking about, sounds like he's lived quite the life and maybe we'll leave it for John to, uh, to drop Unpack. hints of, but yeah. uh, Canadian politics. Friends with Dale Howarchuk. Great. Jeez. The list goes on. Sing, sings, sings in a great... A great band with a great name. Yep, for sure. It's uh, stay and, tuned. Uh, and there's even a Randy Backman story. I think that <laughs> yeah, that, that is. emerges. I mean, this, is, this is a great conversation. <laughs> yeah, stay tuned for that. Before we get to that, Matt, I am uh, now up to date on Succession. I know Succession kind of is a constant conversation in our office place, but also in life throughout the past uh, few years here. The, the, it is. And I don't know if I've said this publicly, and I feel like we really stuck our neck out with Yellowstone and, and got our heads lopped off, but I will say Succession is as good as, I'd say it's up there with Sopranos and uh, The Wire. Wow. It is incredible. 
Yeah, the scene, you know, the in the last episode where they're on the hike with Logan and Kendall and they kind of fall back this in the conversation. Spoiler, spoiler that, I don't want to spoil, but okay. man, the writing, the tension, the tension, such a great show. Well, what about this? And you texted me this, and I actually thought this was the the best line of season three so far, where Shiv, the Shiv, daughter yeah. Shiv, says to Logan, You're crossing the line. And he says, But nothing is a line. Everything everywhere is always moving forever. Get used to it. Yeah, that was the great. That was I think the, I dreamt the line about that. Of, the, the line of uh, season three so far. Fantastic episode. And let's skip any conversation around Yellowstone because I got to say, episode I'm too deep. I'm <laughs> I'm contemplating not seeing it. You, through. you don't you don't want to contrast Succession and Yellowstone. Let's just leave no, it at that. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> this week, Matt. Of course, before we get to our conversation with John Webster, we got to uh, shout out the sponsor of the program, Oakland Realty. That's right, Oakland Realty. This is our brokerage, best brokerage in Vancouver, hands down. If you are a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, get a good culture, fresh sense of the real estate game, head over to oakwind.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakwind.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, which is great, you get a huge incentive for heading over to oakwind.com slash join and typing in VRP 2020. Matt, we are coming up at the end of the second week of November. Not a lot of inventory out there. My prediction is not a lot of inventory comes on before uh, the new year here. It's starting to feel like it's... Almost uh, like a standstill. It is a bit of a standstill in the market right now. Again, I still think there's a couple weeks here if you were trying to trying to get something sold, especially in a market where there's almost zero inventory and high demand. So definitely something to consider. But we're seeing a lot of people now pushing out to the new year. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And And like we talked about last week, it's an interesting moment because the cycles are kind of shifting. Yep. with COVID and and this, trends don't and, make sense, and the lack of inventory is persistent. So you know, might be a great move, but we would have said the same in in the summer, and it proved to be a very busy summer and kind of a slower September. So I'll be very surprised if there's an increase of inventory over the next couple months here. But I'm gearing up, anyways, for the beginning of the year. And uh, man, it's, this is why this conversation today is so fantastic. Oh, that's with where John you're going. With it. That's where I'm going. That's where I'm going. In and, a little uh, bow. And without further ado, our conversation with the head of real estate, secured lending, and Scotia Mortgage Authority, John Webster. Enjoy. Okay, so we're here with John Webster, Head of Real Estate Secured Lending and Scotia Mortgage Authority at Scotiabank. How are you doing, John? I'm doing great. It's a beautiful November 10th in Ontario, so sun is shining and the mortgage market's very strong, so I'm in a great mood. Can't ask for much more than that. (laughs) And no snow on the ground? No snow on the ground. We've got unseasonably warm weather for this time of year, but I'm sure the snow is just around the corner. (laughs) Well, thanks again, John, for taking the time today. Maybe for our listeners, can you start by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. As you mentioned, my title, Real Estate Secured Lending, that's often somewhat confusing. Essentially, I'm responsible at the bank for anything that's secured to a house. So that could be a mortgage or a secured line or a HELOC, as it's known in the industry. But for my sins, I've been in the mortgage business for more than 30 years plus. So I've seen some a variety of different markets. I have to say, quite honestly, I've never experienced a market that we've been in currently throughout the pandemic. So that's been very unique for a number of reasons that we'll discuss. But essentially, I've run a few different uh, mortgage lenders, Ontario-based trust companies, that I vended and started a a mortgage provider that was exclusive to brokers called Maple Trust. I sold that business to the bank about 15, 16 years ago and carried on at Scotiabank trying to grow the mortgage business there. So I've seen just about everything that exists in the marketplace, but you're never too old to experience something new. And certainly for the past 18, 24 months, we've had quite a dynamic and on a market that's been a surprise to a lot of people, including myself. Absolutely. John, just a sort of a behind the the scenes question here. What drew you to the mortgage business in the first place? 
total accident. <laughs> like most people we talk to. <laughs> yeah, no, it, 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 it's very interesting. I'm a, a lawyer by training. I like to tell people, which used to upset my mother, that I'm a failed lawyer. <laughs> but uh, I was working full-time in politics and government, and uh, I was the campaign director in the 1988 federal election, and some of the people that I worked with wanted to buy an ad agency that we'd worked with throughout uh, the campaign. And so we we set out to do that. Unfortunately, the deal fell through. And so the people I'd signed a personal service agreement with said, well, we've got this little startup trust company that we bought. And as we're paying you, go run that. So it was completely by accident. And in addition to that, as a uh, as a young lawyer, I used to like to tell people, I missed my entire mortgage rotation. So the irony of that is I never closed a mortgage deal as a lawyer. And uh, by complete accident, I ended up running a startup mortgage lender. Very interesting. So in, in kind of changing gears uh, to, to the market, the Canadian real estate market, John, has, has the last 18 months surprised you? Very much. When we went into the pandemic, there was a lot of pent-up demand in the housing market. And so we were experiencing, you know, fairly high levels of growth. And in our business, the mortgage business, it's really a proxy, obviously, for the housing market. And the housing market typically, historically, if you look at it, runs about the same level as the growth, the, you know, the GDP. So if annual GDP is at 3 or 4%, mortgage market growth historically has been a proxy for that and would follow that reasonably closely. What had happened going into the pandemic, we were experiencing you know, very high levels of demand, not just in your market in Vancouver or in Toronto, but across most of the major urban markets in particular, they had experienced strong demand. And that's really a function in our business of three really important things. One is obviously the level of interest rates. So we've been at a historically ultra low interest rate environment which spurs on demand. And in addition to that, household formation. And that's something that we all experience typically in Canada through the record levels of immigration. So this year, for example, notwithstanding the pandemic, 400,000 new Canadians come to the country. In fact, very surprisingly, even with the opening up, the, I, I think they've processed about 370,000 of those individuals this year in 2021. So that puts enormous pressure on household formation. So it's not the population's birth rate, but in Canadian experience, it's the level of new Canadians. And typically when new Canadians come, the way that they're selected, within a couple of years in our experience, they're looking to be homeowners. And typically, as we all know, they tend to congregate in the major urban markets and in particular Toronto and Vancouver and then Montreal. So you have this big wave of new Canadians who tend to settle in our largest cities. And so that also creates outsized demand for housing in those places. And the third thing is really the level of employment and what typically happens in, in a market where housing is going down and there's more supply than demand, you'll see a factor of uh, higher levels of unemployment. And we've had very, very high levels of employment, notwithstanding the pandemic. And now we're back to and have exceeded the pre-pandemic levels of those who are eligible to be employed. So when you've got a strong economy and you've got growth and you've got, in addition, the wealth effect from the strength of the equity markets, that all contributes to the housing demand. What happened in the pandemic, which I don't think most people expected, no one knew what to predict, obviously, but I think you know most of us in the lending world were concerned to stand up a deferral program because we were concerned that many of our customers would be displaced during the pandemic and might struggle to meet their obligations with respect to their mortgage and other credit products. So we stood up these great big deferral programs in anticipation of that. But what really took place was the demand just continued. So people were working remotely, as most of us still are, or working now a little bit more in a hybrid fashion. But the reality of that meant 
they were stuck in their dwelling, whatever their household was, whether it was a box in the sky or in a basement. And they started to see, you know, I'm here all the time. I'm not very happy with my living circumstances. I need more space or I need outside space. And so what happened was the demand accelerated and spread across a whole bunch of markets. So in the more expensive markets, we'd always experienced the phenomenon of potential purchasers driving till they qualified. And by that, I meant they went to an area where they felt they could still commute and find a price point, and then they would be eligible to buy their home, particularly for first-time buyers and millennials. But what happened in the pandemic, working remotely, a whole bunch of people decided, you know what, I want to have green space, I want more space, and they went further afield. And then on top of that, because people couldn't travel, a lot of people decided this is the time to buy a recreational property. And at the same time, in the condo market, that was the only really the part of the market that had a bit of a downturn in the urban environments because there weren't international students. There there weren't the new Canadians coming forward. People didn't want to be in the city during the pandemic. So that flatlined uh, for a bit. Uh, but what we've seen is that that came back. So cottage markets, like, for example, if what would be the equivalent um, in the BC context, whether you're looking at properties from Penticton to into Whistler, into the interior, they experienced huge demand and, and price point acceleration. The same thing happened in recreational properties right across the country. And then we experienced as well a number of people in the condo area looking for investment properties because interest rates have been so, so low. So you had a lot of demand from household formation. You had really low interest rates. And you had a whole lot of people that decided they wanted more house, bigger house, different kind of house, or a secondary property. And at the same time, the biggest group of people that are looking to purchase are millennials. And they're sitting back saying, oh, my God, what about affordability? Prices are going up. I shouldn't stand on the sidelines. I better jump in and take advantage of these incredibly low interest rates. So all that created a record uh, demand for housing. And, a, and literally, we've had double-digit growth in our mortgage book. So very, very strange outcome from a worldwide pandemic to create one of the most robust housing markets in Canada. And a market that's been strong and and been criticized from um, you know many international organizations and others have as being too frothy, and that's just continued. I'm sure in in your guys' experience, you've seen that it's been overwhelmingly a seller's market for quite some time. Absolutely, and and we've also you know we're at least in Vancouver we're used to international organizations calling our market too frothy it seems like yeah. it's that's been ongoing for a long time pre-pandemic as well what's your take on that john for i guess the canadian market as a whole as seeing the types of increases we've seen in in price appreciation over the last 18 months oh my take and our take as an institution is that we have not been able to keep up uh, with supply to match demand In fact, our economics department have published some data points that suggest that, you know, we've been short 100,000 units a year for the past decade. And so we've got a big uh, hole to climb out of to create enough supply. And that's the real, in my view, cause of the issue with respect to affordability and increasing house prices. With respect to international criticism, I think in my experience, it goes back to the Great Recession. So, you know, when you recall the meltdown in the United States, what precipitated that was the securitization of mortgages and the way in which that that system worked to create liquidity for a variety of people who were originating mortgages. And that kind of resulted in, you know, the stories about ninjas, uh, you know, no income, no job, right. um, no assets that were buying houses. And I think a lot of people just said, well, Canada's just really a smaller version of the United States and we'll have all the bad symptoms of the market. But our marketplace was very different and our securitization structure, uh, very, very different. In fact, the Canada Mortgage Bond created by CMHC 
that provides a lot of the funding originally for, say, five-year uh, borrowing terms. And the NHA securitization vehicles have been very secure, very well managed, and should be something that Canadians are proud of, including our uh, program for first-time buyers that's supported by the Government of Canada's covenant, whether you borrow from DMHC or Sagan or Canada Guarantee. I think that's a world-class system that came under a lot of unfair criticism. So I spent a lot of time after the Great Recession explaining to U.S. analysts, institutional shareholders, all the differences between our real estate market and the United States real estate market with respect to housing in particular, and also the differences in lending in Canada and in the U.S. And notwithstanding all of that and the data points, I think because it happened in the United States and has happened in other places like Ireland and to a certain extent in Australia and other markets, people just assume, well, it's going to happen in Canada. Look at this price inflation with respect to houses. There must be a, a bubble there. And the reality is there, there, there isn't a bubble there. This growth has been um, a product of the factors that I mentioned earlier, which are quite unique. And the same thing applies to Vancouver. I don't think that people really understood you've got a limited footprint there for, for building housing. So you've got the sea on one side, the mountains on the other. Yeah, you can expand into the lower mainland and that happened. But realistically, it's not a big footprint. And you had overwhelming demand there. You know, unlike any other city in Canada, that was the first choice uh, for a, a lot of foreign buyers, particularly from Asia, that looked at their relative square foot values and the quality of life and the attractiveness of Vancouver and the greater Vancouver area and said, this is so much cheaper than Singapore or Hong Kong or Sydney. We're going to buy here. So that created pressure in your marketplace as well. And, and you saw some of the rule changes to try to provide a mitigant against that. But essentially, it's demand. And that demand has continued. And you're limited in what you can come up with with supply. And Vancouver, like our other major urban markets, were very, very slow to allow intensification and redevelopment and to have enough units to match the real estate that's there. I mean, it's kind of ironic. You look at Canada, it's such a broad geographic expanse. And yet we struggle with adding intensity in our urban centers. So, you know, what we need to do is provide a way to streamline the approval of new development. And that means for both rental, for affordable housing, and for market-level housing. And all of our jurisdictions have struggled with that. So until we get our act together and the very three levels of government get on the same page with the private sector, and say we, we're going to build a lot more units than we're building today, and we need to build more tomorrow. That's the only way I think that we're going to be able to solve the affordability issue. Thinking about that, John, at least you know our office is in downtown Vancouver, and you did mention earlier on about you know condos kind of taking a hit early in the in the pandemic, and and we do seem to them coming back now. But in terms of building, you know, you're just talking about basically more supply. Curious to hear your take on the real estate trends we've seen emerge over COVID. So, you know, this push outward, the look for more space, the idea that people are going to work from home or some sort of hybrid model for, you know, maybe forever, who knows. But in your mind, do these trends have staying power or do you think we're going to get back to kind of uh, the way we lived in 2019, however long ago that seems? I think we've already seen a reversion to the mean in terms of, you mentioned the bounce back in the condo market, and that certainly happened, uh, for example, in Toronto, where there was lots of hand-wringing. A couple of things happened with the international students not being there for uh, rental stock, and, and condo investors provided a lot of the slack in terms of rental properties. And then in addition to that, they had the restrictions on Airbnb and they, they all happened at the same time. And so there was a bunch of nervousness and people saying, well, people are going to dump all these units onto the market. And that didn't happen. In fact, the older units on a square foot basis went up and there's been renewed strength of demand for condominiums in Vancouver as well as Toronto. 
So I think there will be a bit of a return to the pre-pandemic circumstances where, you know, people will be able to work remotely. But I think that even in a hybrid situation where they're working partly remotely and partly in an office, even downtown, I think that what you'll find is that, you know, people are very social animals and they will want to congregate. And you can see that with the pandemic reopening. And in addition to that, there's lots of activities at work that do require being in the same setting, right? So whether it's for strategizing or for being able to just set up and work through your operational plan, your business plan. Sometimes those things require and are much more effective in that kind of a setting. So I think it, it won't be one or the other. I think a lot of people have been working in a number of industries remotely for a long time. And so that, you know, just like e-commerce, this has accelerated that. But I don't think, I think you've seen in most of the commercial real estate markets, Montreal, it was reported on, is back to pre-pandemic vacancy levels. So I think that from that point of view, our urban environment will still be dominated by commercial real estate. Uh, You know, in Toronto, I don't know how familiar you are with it. If you walk down the path, you know, the subterranean underground to connect most of the uh, various office towers during the pandemic, it's been like walking in a ghost town. And that's still sort of the, the fact today. But it's slowly changing. And I think, you know, depending on the variant, obviously, as we move forward, I think you'll see a return to those pre-pandemic practices. And that's how people will decide to live and work. You know, John, just thinking about, and this is something we've kind of talked about, I'm not so sure how much we've talked about it on the show, but, you know, watching people from Vancouver over the last 18 months, either move out to the suburbs or to the island or into the interior, it seems like, uh, you know, there's been a pretty steady flow and watching the prices accelerate so dramatically out there. Just wondering from your perspective, watching that trend across the country, thinking of kind of risk mitigation, do you see there being the chance that, you know, people that have, you know, at the height of the market went out to to a smaller town and are now kind of going, okay, wait a second, you know, I want to be back in downtown Toronto. Is there a risk of, of a lot of people being underwater uh, from your perspective? No, I don't think so. I mean, some of the the biggest gains in price appreciation, you know, when you mention people moving into the interior or going to Penticton, for example, and, you know, that was already pretty pricey market and then has gotten more expensive as more people have looked at those uh, recreational opportunities. Same thing's taken place across the country. And that's settled and pulled back already, you know, that the the reality is in those settings they're not making more waterfront right so the reality is also you've got a big chunk of your population that's ready that own a home and are looking to buy a recreational or a cottage or even an investment property so i don't think that uh, there'll be a big correction i think the level of activity has already started to balance out the migration was a little bit overstated at the beginning because in my experience it was taking place not as much with people of a working age, but, you know, the the experience, you, you read constantly about people that realize that they've got a lot of equity built up in their principal residence in Toronto or Vancouver or Montreal, and they can sell that, move further afield. So typically that was taking place with people that were contemplating retirement or semi-retirement. And so that that did accelerate, but it's not the levels and numbers that you think, right? The what I would have described as commuter markets that are within the uh, urban area, for example, in Toronto, like Barrie, Ontario, was already seeing a huge growth uh, based on people moving out. And you're seeing some of that pushing east in Toronto now. And some businesses are making the decision and have made the decision, and it's not just the pandemic influence, to locate on the boundaries of urban environments because the real estate was cheaper and it was available. Plus, they wanted to be able to provide the employees that were going to be working there with an opportunity to buy a home in a market that was more affordable. So some of those things were happening, accelerated by the pandemic. I think you'll see a pullback now as things return to a pre-pandemic normal. John, one of, one of the things we're, we're seeing, obviously, with an aging boomer population and millennials entering into the housing market, 
there's lots of talk about the wealth transfer and if it's taking yeah. place and what that means for the market. It's something we haven't talked about yet. What are, what are your thoughts about, about the wealth transfer and its impact on, on the Canadian real estate market? Well, just like the pandemic, the impact of the wealth transfer is very uneven, right? So there are a lot of millennials and there's been some published research recently on the bank of mom and dad. And when you <laughs> use that, yeah, everybody laughs about it. But having been in the position to uh, be a bank of mom and dad, I know it's a real thing. So that is happening. Unfortunately, not everyone has access to that, right? And so to the extent that people are fortunate, I think that a lot of people, boomers, are looking at their estate and saying, you know what, better that I make that wealth transfer into the vivos and give it to my children when they can use it today to buy a house than wait for their demise, right? So I think that is happening quite a bit. I mean, there's, I think CIBC put out last week, I don't know if you guys saw it, some information on gifting and how much of down payments were being gifted by parents or other relatives, grandparents, for example. So that is a real thing. It's not available to everyone. My disappointment is I think we have one of the best first-time buyer programs, as I said, in the world, and something not to back away from, but to be, to actually to shout from the rooftops and say, this thing's worked really, really well. Unfortunately, the restrictions, the cap limits for Toronto and Vancouver at a million make it impossible, really, even for those who have good incomes, uh, millennials, to access that program. So I think that's something that could be addressed to assist with that. But certainly, the other thing that's happened, and I'm sure you guys have experienced it, there's been lots of expansion of alternate financing, whether from mix or private lending. That's grown considerably, and that was happening pre-pandemic. So, for example, you know, you're a, a new purchaser, a new borrower, you don't qualify at Scotia. There are many other forms of alternate finance. The unfortunate thing is they're, you know, they're very expensive. And there's a whole group of consumers now that think that paying more than 3% is expensive, right? So they get sticker shock when they're told by a broker or a mortgage specialist, I can find you financing, but it's not bank financing. You know, and from my point of view, what's tough about that is when I talk to young people, I tell them, you know, how much are you paying in rent? Calculate what you can afford and serve a third of your disposable income to purchase your first residence. Think about your budget. Think about contingency fund for things that can go wrong uh, when you buy a place, whether it's a leaky roof or a furnace, air conditioner, you know, some of the big maintenance expenses that you might have to uh, shell out for in the first few years. But the great thing about these interest rates at this level is, and I don't think many people understand this, that more than 60% of your monthly or biweekly payment in these low, low rates goes towards retiring principal. So you're really creating equity every month. So would you rather be paying that out in rent or would you rather be realizing that dream of home ownership? And I think that's the other thing. Millennials, when they're surveyed, they want to own homes. And Canadians have always had a strong drive for home ownership. In fact, the one region where that always lagged, where there were a lot more renters, uh, was in the province of Quebec and in Montreal in particular. And in the last 10 years, that's flipped over completely. So I, I think there you can say that nationally, people want to own a home. You certainly see older people wanting to stay in their homes. People thought there would be a bunch of stock that's also contributed to our supply issue of aging boomers that would sell their places. But it looks like they're hanging on to them much longer than was originally predicted. And we've got a whole group of new Canadians that I mentioned and then millennials that want to get in to their first house. And so that's going to continue to create a very strong housing market, in my view, for the next couple of years, even with interest rates rising. Can we talk a little bit about that, John? So everyone seems to be talking about inflation. It's kind of the been months now, but I think there was even this morning out of the U.S. some numbers that were, were higher than everyone expected. In your mind, is inflation transitory or is it here to stay this this level of inflation, and how will that impact the real estate market? It's a great question. So the numbers out of the U.S. were the highest rate of inflation in today's numbers in the last 30 years. So that does suggest that 
there is inflation. The transitory really relates to economists saying, you know, this is because of supply chain disruptions or this is because of the structural impact of the pandemic. And, you know, after a certain period of time, we'll get back to normal and we'll have more normalized growth rate and then we'll have more normalized uh, inflation targets, which is set in the terms of the Bank of Canada at 2%. I think that the governor of the Bank of Canada recently expressed it well uh, with respect to transitory. That's got to be one of the most overused words in the last six months. It was interesting, I think, how he put it, I'm paraphrasing, that he said that transitory doesn't mean short term, right? What it means is when economists calculate what inputs they use to be able to get a handle on inflation, they see those numbers stabilizing over time. So the question is, how much over time? So transitory doesn't mean that it's over next week, next month, or in the next six months. And then for me, when I talk to people, they say to me, have you filled up your vehicle lately? If you're not EV, like it's a sticker shock. Food prices, housing prices, all these things have gone up. And because of the pandemic and supply chain disruption, things have gone up even further. Restaurants, all those services have been impacted, particularly by labor shortages. You know, we've got Ontario's playing catch up with its minimum wage to BC. So all those things create inflation, obviously. So I think you will see inflation and there will be increases. We've said as a bank that we think there'll be four Bank of Canada moves next year in 22, which means four 25 basis points moves. So like that's a, a full percentage point and probably another four in the next year following on. So look at that. You're both very close to the market and to pricing. So you look at variable mortgage today, people are paying sub 2%. Fixed is, you know, even with the last round of increases in the last couple of weeks, is still, you can get priced around 3%. And we qualify everybody at the Bank of Canada qualifying rate, which, as you know, is five and a quarter. So even with inflation and rates increasing, we've got a pretty good cushion, pretty good confidence in people's ability to debt service. So I don't think inflation is going to be, if it's at that level, the dampener on housing demand. If we had a big spike, obviously that would dampen it down sooner. But I don't think anybody predicts that given the shape of the global economy today. So inflation, yes. Will it impact demand materially? In my view, no. And the one thing that we've been talking about too is it's just gotten so much more expensive to build in Vancouver. So presumably, you know, and and, and lengthier, yeah, lengthier as well. But but just you know, thinking about how if the inflation really spikes, you know, interest rates are one thing, but the the cost to build presumably will just increase, and it's hard to imagine you know a lot of supply coming on. In that in that scenario, if people aren't willing to pay the, those prices, yeah, I think that you know all the input costs around building obviously have gone up. But if you look at the lumber swing, right? So last year lumber was increasing by six and seven hundred percent. That's come back down to earth. Now the consumer hasn't felt that change, right? But uh, the reality is those input costs will go up. But I think that as the supply chain disruptions are lessened. You know, it, we we got to remember that when you've got the largest ports in North America effectively backed up like that, it will create issues that will take many months, maybe even uh, a year or longer to resolve. So the input costs have gone up. I think it will stabilize. It's, you know, it's supply and demand. So the things that you need, whether you're building or even if you're doing a retrofit, if you're doing a renovation, right, you, it's exactly what you said. Materials cost more. You thought it was tough to find people to work on your house or cottage before. Now it feels like it's impossible, right? And the, the delays, you know, I, I've been putting, I, I'm doing exactly what most borrowers today are doing. So I've been doing some uh, work, driveway redone, landscaping, replacing decks, and, you know, waiting literally months for in-between delivery. So, the, you know, it's tough on the contractors too, right? Because it's not their fault. They can't get it. So they do the work they can, then they stop. So you're absolutely right. It'll be a lot of stop and starts. 
But that stuff will smooth out over time. I think that truly is transitory. I think people should prepare themselves that we're in a rising interest rate environment. It's a question of how steep is that slope. I think the slope will be steady but gentle. So I don't know if that includes like the grouse grind, if that that's a pretty steep slope, I guess. <laughs> so, uh, it's not that. I don't know what the what, what what's a gentle slope in Vancouver that would be uh, maybe a small hill in Stanley Park. I'm not sure. It better not be the grouse grind. That's yeah. that's already crippled Matt and I. So oh. <laughs> just to kind of flesh this out even even more, but we've kind of covered interest rates uh, a little bit, the trajectory here. But so Scotia's take on it is four interest rate increases in 2022 and then uh, can another you, four and then another, another four in, in 2023 yeah. is that kind of correct that 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 is what our uh, senior economist uh, jf perot has indicated and and i have to say and i'm not saying this because he's our bank economist but having uh, listened to him pre-pandemic and where we've landed now i keep telling him jf i'm waiting for you to be wrong but if there was the if there was a pool of economists equivalent to an NFL survivor pool, I know who I'd be picking. <laughs> so, you know, just thinking about those interest rate increases, maybe I can even just give an example of a, of a client of ours right now who is able to lock in a five-year fixed at 2.4, and they're not thinking of selling the, uh, disregard I, the idea of penalties, I think here, but a five-year fixed at 2.4 or a variable at 1.6, the spread between those is is significant what what would be your take on on how property owners can protect themselves right now against the impacts of these rising interest rate uh, increases so you know that's a really good question i think that you have to every borrower is a little different right so the advice i would typically give is if you're a first-time borrower a first-time buyer you want certainty on your payments, right? When it's your first experience, you might be willing to pay a premium for that certainty. So you'll lock into that 2.45 year would be prudent advice. Now, having said that, for the people that have played the variable, you know, all the way through the past several years, they're, they've come out ahead, right? So you have to be careful what advice you give. But you're right, the delta between what the variable has been, particularly during the pandemic, and the fixed, even they're both, in my view as a lender, ridiculously low, they uh, have attracted people more to the variable. So in Canada, historically, the overwhelmingly first choice of borrowers, regardless of whether they're first time, repeat, or whatever is the five-year term, that that changes obviously with the shape of the yield curve. But in the pandemic, there's been uh, the majority of people have chosen variable. The great thing about most variables, right, is the uh, the payment doesn't change when the interest rate goes up. Now your principal repayment will go down, so you got to think about that: how much principal you want to be retiring. And in addition to that, most of the variable programs like ours, you can lock into a fixed term anytime. So, in fact, on our step product, it, uh, which is our umbrella product, the Scotia Total Equity Program, you can go long and short. You can take part of your mortgage as variable and part fixed. So you can really customize for a borrower to meet what their needs or expectations are. But I think that it's important when you're a first time to really spend some time thinking about how much how much of your disposable income can you commit to your housing, right? Because you don't want to be in a situation, regardless of interest rate rises, that other aspects of your lifestyle are going to be impacted. So you really need to think that through. But I think going forward, I think what you'll see, whether it is the right thing for an individual borrower to do, uh, when people, in my experience, read about inflation in the paper, then they start to self-elect and and will start to lock in to those longer terms, particularly people that were going short. And then all of a sudden, if there is sort of a bigger jump up in that five-year or four-year rate than they expected. and, And so I think Canadians overwhelmingly, in my experience, are reasonably cautious and prudent when they make their borrowing decisions. So I think you'll see more people moving into the five-year as rates go up. Just a few more questions for you here, John, and we appreciate your time. Just thinking about CMHC and and kind of bears on the market, it, it seems like CMHC has gotten, you know, kind of famously gotten the, the market wrong early on in the pandemic. And I think everybody's kind of talked about that. Uh, that enough. But even more recently, they've kind of 
they seem to be out of step, say, with Scotia's read on the market in terms of risk factors. What What is your take on not only CMHC, but I guess kind of, and we did talk about institutional or sorry, international organizations, but what, what's your take on kind of how Scotia's out of step with, with CMHC and other more bearish views on the market? Yeah, I, I mean, the... I mean, people have called that out. I mean, they were uh, a spectacular failure in their ability to predict what was going to happen in the pandemic. And even when they made what I thought were pretty extreme predictions, you know, 16, 18% corrections, like nobody else that watches the market and has experience in the market shared those views, right? And certainly their competitors didn't. Their competitors were delighted by them acting, not only predicting that, but then pulling back. And I think today, you know, there, uh, Evans at all viewed himself as, you know, a crusader in the housing market. And so he liked controversy, I believe, and, and he was willing to be bold. And that certainly cost them not as just as an institution in terms of their credibility, not so much that they're, you know, they can make whatever predictions they want but they lost significant market share, right? So I think that they, as an institution currently, regret that, and they're trying to make sure there aren't any competitive gaps and, and that they're fully committed. But they are a big voice for, a positive voice for the increase of affordable housing in this country, and they're, they're an important vehicle, and I, and, I, and I think they're returning to that role. So, I, you know, I think that you're right. They were out of step in terms of predicting the market, I think they were even before the pandemic, though, in terms of their shared equity program. And I don't want to bore you with that because so few people took advantage of it. But there is a book, if you guys want to read something called The House of Debt, that summarizes what a couple of academics thought were the true cause of the housing collapse in the U.S. Evan and others thought that was a great book. And, and that's where they got the idea for shared equity, which hasn't done as well as they had hoped either. So... I think CMHC has been out of step, but if you look at them historically, really powerful instrument for positive change in the housing industry. You know, the creation of the Canada Mortgage Bond by them was a significant development to create liquidity for all the lenders in Canada. So they've done some really, really good and important things and added a lot of stability with the support of the government of Canada. So, you know, they started that institution out and it's appropriate we're talking about it now on Remembrance Day that... um, you know, that institution was created to help veterans returning from the Second World War to be able to afford housing and then expanded from there. And so in terms of their social housing mandate, they're really trying to push that now. In terms of their calls on the uh, housing market, you know, they have a right to be wrong, but they were very, very wrong. And they've had a change of leadership there. So I'm hopeful that things get back on track. And maybe as a final question, John, we always like to ask people to bring out their crystal ball on the Vancouver Real Estate Podcast, and we'd love to hear your take on what you think uh, is going to happen in the Vancouver and the Canadian real estate market overall in the next, say, one, three, and five years. So I don't think it's just about the, the Vancouver market. I think that if you look across the country and most of the major urban markets, they're all seller's markets that reflect the, the the fact that there's more demand than supply. And I don't really see that changing. I think that people's expectations have to change, right? So, you know, for example, uh, there's the, in Toronto, think of it in terms of the increase of the Manhattanization effect, right? The fact that, you know, 30 years ago, you could live in a single family dwelling pretty close to the urban core. That may be not a reasonable expectation today. So the kids of boomers that grew up there may say, oh, this is terrible. But the reality is that's just not going to be achievable. Right? So we're, I don't think that the intensification and the growth is going to change. So there will be that demand. So those are markets that, in my view, that will continue to increase in terms of house price acceleration. The question is how quickly and what will, could that create a circumstance where there would be a major correction? So to have a correction, you know, you need to have rapid interest rate rising, high levels of unemployment and house prices decelerating. So in my limited crystal ball, which is probably fuzzy on most mornings, I would say that I still see strong housing demand 
and that will continue. In Vancouver in particular, I'm sure you're already experiencing a number of expats from Hong Kong that have come over. There have been the restrictions on foreign buyers, but that's a market that will continue to see demand and outsize demand, in my view, even if the rest of the country were to decelerate. And also, you know, BC economy has been, as you know, very, very strong for a number of years. And now the Quebec economy has been very strong and the Ontario economy has continued to grow and push into all of those other areas, creating more pressure in markets that were more affordable. I don't see that trend discontinuing anytime soon. So I think if you're going to make an investment in real estate and you're worried that there'll be a correction to the downside, I don't think that should be your biggest worry. I think what you need to think about is your long-term financing and you know maybe make a call on, as you said, you've got a customer that's hesitating between one six and two four and and you know what's the right point in time to make that call? I would say you know we're not going to see a step up right away, but when you're into 2022, you should start thinking about locking in. Sound advice for sure. John, we got this segment called the Five Wire that we close out every episode with five lighthearted questions to end the show. Do you have time for just a few more short questions? Absolutely. I hope they're not too too many uh, fastballs. <laughs> well, the first question is, and and it's I, I know um, I, I think you've spent quite a bit of time in Vancouver. It sounds like it. Favorite bar or restaurant in Vancouver, if you have one? Geez, that you have so many fine restaurants in Vancouver, and I haven't been to any in the last couple of years because of the pandemic. Right. So <laughs> it, it's a hard choice because you have so many fine restaurants. I would say historically that Umberto's uh, Giardino was uh, is a place that I have gone to over the past twenty years and always had a great experience. So I don't know how it's doing, but I have. A very very fond memories of Berto and uh, and his many establishments, but that one in particular. A few a few blocks from our our office, uh, great spot, great recommendation. We'll go in there and say hello to Berto for <laughs> a long time. They don't let guys like us in there, I don't think. <laughs> Is it really busy even now? You know, I haven't. It's it, to be quite honest, it's been quite some time since we've been there. But um, oh, I would okay. imagine. I, I mean, there's a definitely a loyal, uh, yeah, a loyal say, customer loyal, base, loyal clientele there. Yeah. That's for sure. <laughs> Favorite band or song, John? Oh man! Well, I have. We have our own charity band called Subprime, so you'll like the name. <laughs> and uh, and and we just actually did a uh, did a gig. So um, that's uh, my favorite band is Subprime. <laughs> In fact, uh, we played a few years ago one of your better halls and uh, had the uh, good fortune and misfortune to have Randy Backman uh, doing an industry event at lunch. And uh, he came over to our soiree where we were playing and it was Soundcheck. And uh, we use this one of our theme songs, which makes sense because it's, uh, kind of an industry band taking care of business and as I was up on the stage doing sound check Randy sent me a note he goes are those the four goofs I met at lunch wrecking my song so Subprime's <laughs> uh, uh, my favorite band and uh, my favorite song boy that's a tough one I'm not sure I could pick one song out of many I'm kind of locked in a time warp in the 70s so I'm a I'm a bad person to ask Subprime is maybe the best name. Yeah. <laughs> Incredible name for, uh, for, for a band in your industry. Uh, what is one book that you'd recommend to anyone listening? Ooh. Okay, so because we just had the Gillard Prizes in Toronto, which as a bank we host, I had read uh, Marion Kay's Fight Back, and that was one of the books nominated, though it, it didn't didn't win. And so I would recommend that it, it's a, a recent uh, publication and she's an incredible Canadian author. You probably know from Steinbeck, right. uh, Manitoba uh, or Louise Penny. I, I listen, I don't read, I listen audibly to a lot of the Gamash series and I understand she's written a book with Hillary Clinton. So I'll, I'll have to put that on my list. Fantastic. One piece of advice uh, you would give your 18 year old self. 
And and John, just as a an aside here, I, I noticed on I think Wikipedia that you were you're involved with Paul Martin's campaign in in the early two thousands. It sounds like you have quite a political background as well. Yes, I I spent a lot of time with Paul and was his uh, co chair in '04 and '06, and also of his leadership in '02. So yeah, and and spent a significant amount of time. Uh, in BC in those years as well, crisscrossing, which was kind of uh, uh, interesting because I did spend a lot of time in uh, politics. And as a result, you travel a lot, you meet a lot of people in various communities. And when I established Maple Trust, it it actually helped me because I knew people in a lot of those places. So it was synergistic. Or or I used to tell my shareholders that so they didn't get too upset with me. And sorry, I, I buried the question there. <laughs> that one piece of advice you would give your 18-year-old self? Oh, my God. My 18-year-old self. That would be like a big book of advice of things <laughs> not to do that, that I did anyway. Uh, but uh, um, what would be the best piece of advice? I, I think one of the things, I'm seriously, I would say is that buy real estate as soon as you can. I wish that I had done more of that when I was, not when I was 18, obviously, but that I started on that path and uh, uh, prepared for that. And the other thing I would have said was I recall my 18th birthday and when the people I was with said that they were going to buy me a drink, I didn't realize it was the whole draft tray. And uh, (laughs) I had drink and they expected me to drink the whole tray. So I would say to my 18-year-old self, you might want to uh, to abduct that one. (laughs) (laughs) And last but not least, John, what is something that you've bought in the last year or two for under $1,500 that has had a positive impact on your life? Positive impact on my life. I don't know if this is a very good example, but I have to say that if you haven't bought a Dyson vacuum, it truly is one of the, I think, best vacuums and a real game changer in terms of what you use over the years. So I don't think it changed my life, but um, it made, uh, when I make a mess, it's a lot easier to clean up. You know what? I think this is, uh, we, we have a brother who, uh, I think that would be his answer too. He screams it from the rooftops. <laughs> I even have one of the little portable ones. I liked it so much for the car and stuff. So. Oh, nice. <laughs> That's the first time we've had a Dyson on, yeah. the, on the show, but makes makes a lot of sense. Well, John, how can people find out more about what Scotiabank is up to and uh, how can they learn more and anything you want to you wanna recommend that listen, oh, what, listeners check out? I'll tell you one thing that would be, I think would be helpful uh, to your listeners. If they're thinking about getting a mortgage and they want to go out on that home buying journey, Obviously, they need to meet market professionals like yourself that can guide them. But one thing they can do when they're doing their research is we have a a fully digital platform called eHome. And they can go on there and basically see what they qualify for and do it all themselves. In fact, if they wanted, they could um, create their mortgage and do everything other than uh, pick up the keys at the solicitor. And uh, that's a, a unique feature of the development in the digital world and you know you can go up there and and decide what you can see and afford and what documents you need so it's a great uh learning experience and and a lesson in financial literacy for those people contemplating making a purchase and they don't want to call somebody yet go on the e-home site in fact we just added uh switches in uh which consumers tell us you know they'd like to be able to switch banks but it's too inconvenient, expensive, and and troubling. And so we've just added that. We haven't told the world about it. Uh, but I think that's pretty neat. Uh, and that's certainly all of those digital solutions, as, as, as you guys would have experienced, have been accelerated. That's one of the benefits of the pandemic. I think a lot of right. digital development was enhanced. Certainly in our business, it was as we moved to virtual signings and virtual closings and and, and I think that in our world, uh, you know, our home buying journey world, you, you facilitating it for purchasers and, and, and vendors alike. I mean, people forget that for most Canadians, that buying a house is the biggest financial transaction of their life, typically, the biggest investment they, they may make. But it's also a very emotional one, right? And so 
I think that that's, you know, if I was to say anything, what kept me in the mortgage business is I've never met anyone that wasn't grateful for help with their mortgage, regardless of how financially sophisticated they were. Uh, and so that's a, that's a good feeling for people that work in this industry. Fantastic. Absolutely. And, and I'll, uh, I'll, I'll say that Matt and I both have uh, step products and the HELOCs. Oh, I love you guys. Well, you know what? The HELOCs <laughs> attached, uh, attached to those has been instrumental in our real estate journey. So uh, yeah, we, we love that product for sure. Well, I'll tell you what, if I can make it out to Vancouver, I'll take you to Umberto's and we can celebrate step. <laughs> Sounds good to well, me. Well, you do it, John. Well, thanks so much for your time. Uh, that was a fantastic conversation. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. So there you have it, folks. Our discussion with John Webster, head of real estate secured lending and Scotia Mortgage Authority at Scotiabank. Really enjoyed that conversation with John, Matt. We really covered the whole spectrum here for real estate in Canada. I do want to get into the kind of backroom machinations of the politics, though. So, so you want to have him back on our Vancouver politics uh, podcast? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I but think about that: the early two thousands, Chrétien, Paul Martin. Interesting. He was times. in the room. He was in the room. Yeah. So I, I know, and when he was not gigging with uh, Prime, Prime, uh, Subprime, Subprime, yeah. Subprime. Yeah. <laughs> God, what a fantastic name! So maybe we'll leave it there for the day. What a great five wire! I just, uh, you know, one one last thing. Just thinking about the Dyson. Yeah, that uh, immediately uh, we get these answers on this show where you think you've covered everything. I and thought I, he was going with AirPods. I well, that's the thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And how many times can we have AirPods? We got to throw throw in a, a a loop here with the Dyson. But um, really, really great having John on the program, Matt. Before we cut for the day, what else do we got? What else do we have? We have VancouverRealEstatePodcast dot com. This is our website where all things real estate related live, including the Vancouver Commercial Real Estate Podcast. Head over to VancouverRealEstatePodcast dot com where you can get transcripts of the episodes but also the LiveWire. This is our weekly newsletter. Stats before anyone else, deal of the month, VIP access to pre-sale projects, both commercial and residential, of course. And we have tried and true XT boy, Swansea. Yeah, early, Swansea. early listener. We actually friend first of the met show. Swansea. Yeah, friend of the show back in maybe 2016, I think. He just reached out for a new search and he said, I want to power walk while the rest... I don't even know. remember how you say it, but well, he literally... Why, why, don't you, why don't you throw me the pitch and I'll, okay, I'll tell you okay, how here, it's done. Because Matt, if you are not using PCS, you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices, days on market. You basically get realtor level information for free at your fingertips. This is available for free at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. I got to tell you, it is the best way to search for real estate. That's why we have guys coming back for over more searches and over, over and, and over. over again. I don't know how many people I have with like four, five, six searches set up, including myself. Yeah, I, I'm constantly monitoring areas. There's nothing out there like PCS for searching effectively. You know, create your own free account. Give Vancouver, us a call. com, or you can try me at 778-847-2854 or matt at com, Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or adam at com. We also got that Kokomo line. People still reaching out to come on the show. Info at com. Yeah, for sure. And uh, man, I wasn't joking when I said I was a big fan of the step mortgage. Uh, in all seriousness, the HELOC component of this that we've talked about at length on our on our show really important consideration when you're getting a mortgage and uh john kind of alluded to that but if you want to learn about the scotia bank products as well feel free to get in touch with us because we oh, can connect yeah. you to a fantastic broker at scotia bank and uh yeah let's cut for the day have a good week guys and we'll be back next week take care two thousand faces for radio subscribe today Hey everyone, 
Pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. We want to take a minute to tell you about Holy House, a nonprofit organization that provides community building programs and tenant support services to low-income seniors, veterans, families, and vulnerable residents in the downtown east side and across the lower mainland. Melissa from our team has been volunteering at Holy House. Melissa, what's been your experience? Honestly, it's been so fulfilling just to spend a few hours a week in the community and watch how the staff really transforms these vulnerable communities from the inside out, starting with just small things, right? Playing games, drinking coffee, having some simple conversations that you wouldn't necessarily think are super fulfilling. And you come out just feeling like you've really made an impact and connected with the community. And you've been to multiple buildings, but you're playing games, drinking coffee. Yeah, you know, serving food sometimes. And you made some friends along the and way. I've made some friends along the way. It's really helped me be more present, actually, in those moments of just, you know, realizing how simple life can be to make an impact, right? Fantastic. And if you want to learn more, you can definitely check out Jenny Conkin, co-founder of Holy House, who is a past guest fan favorite on the show, or head over to holyhouse.ca where you can donate or volunteer, and they're looking for both donations, and they definitely like volunteers. That's holyhouse.ca. Vancouver needs your help. Be part of the solution. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020. <laughs> 